You're listening to Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we're bringing you an author chat with Jean Kwok to talk about her newest novel, The Love Over Women. Um, as always, Books and Boba is supported by you, our listeners, at patreon.com slash booksandboba. Um, so head on over there if you want to um, support our podcast and join our members-only Discord server and have access to our monthly Boba Chat bonus episodes. So The Leftover Woman is written in two POVs. Uh, it follows a Chinese mother who finds out that her daughter was adopted by this white American couple in New York without her consent or knowledge. So she travels to Manhattan and um, she is trying to get by by working whatever job she can. And a job that she gets hired for is working at this nightclub for um, an Asian clientele, should I say. And the other POV is written by the adoptive mother of Fiona, the uh, baby girl that got adopted. So... Um, it was a very fascinating read, and I wanted Jean Kwok on the show for a while now. Uh, she's the author of um, Girl in Translation, which you know has been like a very big deal in Asian American literature. So it was really nice speaking to Jean, and also she has like a very interesting story in terms of uh, becoming a writer. She she has a very fascinating background as well. So. Enjoy our conversation with Jean. And we are here with New York Times bestselling author Jean Kwok. She is the author of Searching for Sylvie Lee, Mambo in Chinatown, Girl in Translation, and most recently, The Leftover Woman. Welcome to the show, Jean. Thank you so much for having me. I love your show. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, it's always weird when authors say that they listen to our show because uh, we think that, I mean, authors are kind of a concept in our mind until we <laughs> actually meet you. <laughs> we say this, we, we've been talking to authors for like six years now, but still, it still seems kind of surreal to us um, that we get to do this. But thank you for joining us. Um, I think we should mention international bestselling author because you're calling in from overseas. You're calling in from the Netherlands right now. That's that's so, well too. That we're talking yeah, I mean your your journey, your your journey as like an immigrant and writer. I mean, it's well documented on like interviews. Uh, you've been in the publishing industry for quite a while now. Uh, but for our listeners who don't know your background, uh, can you share a little bit about your story, uh, like where you grew up, and how did you get introduced to the world of reading and writing? Well, that's a really interesting question. I um, I was born in Hong Kong and I uh, moved to New York City when I was five years old. We were incredibly poor and we lived in an apartment in Brooklyn that was so run down. It was literally falling around our ears and um, it actually didn't even have a working central heating system. So we... I lived without heat for most of my childhood in New York City, which, you know, as you know, is 
bitterly, bitterly cold. Um, there was like ice on the inside of the window panes of the windows that had glass. And uh, I also worked in a clothing factory in Chinatown with my family after school. Um, so, you know, I had a real working class background. I grew up, um, I didn't speak English when I first came. I didn't do well in school. Um, but after I learned English, I started doing better. And ultimately, I wound up going to Harvard. I graduated, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then years later, I, um, after, so I did my undergrad at Harvard and then I did my, um, graduate degree in fiction at, um, Columbia. And I then moved to the Netherlands because I had met a Dutch guy, um, who I then married. So that's why I'm in the Netherlands, even though I have to say I am in the middle of a divorce right now, sadly. So I have had two kind of big immigration experiences in my life. And about reading and books, you know, I mean, I didn't speak English, um, but when I started to learn English, I loved books. You know, I just, they were the thing I loved more than anything. But it didn't occur to me to become an author. I mean, it was not the kind of thing that was encouraged in my traditional um, Chinese family. And it, it really just didn't occur to me. I mean, we were so poor. I loved books. I read constantly. But I actually majored in physics when I first went to college. Um, it was only there that I kind of felt like I had the, you know, bandwidth and the liberty to actually decide to become a writer. Yeah. I feel like that specific circumstance is, is relatable to a lot of our listeners, a lot of people that we talk to, too, because, you know, a lot of us are children of immigrants or, or immigrants ourselves. And the goal for our parents is just to make sure we're not poor, that we have, you know, a, a steady job coming out. So, you know, the idea of pursuing creative endeavors, you know, it's always like, oh, just a hobby, you know, just keep it as a hobby. Um, but you're you're still going to be a physicist, right? You're still going to be a scientist, right? <laughs> um, how did you decide to, you know, switch gears and you know, really pursue writing and, and MFA and all that? Well, you know, it's it's just kind of so great to talk to people who really get this whole situation, you know, it's, I mean, what you said is so true. It just, um, you know, I have writer friends whose parents were writers, you know, and like from the time they were five years old, they were like scribbling away and like making little books and being creative. I mean, I was not creative, you know, I was working in a factory. I mean, I just didn't, there was no room for creativity and art in my life. And um, indeed, the whole thrust was go and, you know, survive, right? Be able to make a living uh, in some way, not necessarily be rich, but just be able to survive this seemingly very harsh landscape that we find ourselves in. And so I, it, and I didn't, I didn't, like I wasn't in like super fancy schools that were like, oh, let us nourish your creativity. So like, I was just kind of like, you know, grinding my way through and um, trying to get the grades and trying to work hard and getting into college. Although I loved, loved, loved books. And I was a real daydreamer and a very like spaced out kid, basically. But um, I was a physics major and I was in college and I was staying up all night, like pulling an all nighter, trying to get some problem set done. And I was 
like making notes on a sketch pad for the problem set while I was, you know, trying to figure out an equation. And I wrote a poem and I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, whoa, what is that? Like, whoa, that was just such an incredible shock. Like I, I just hadn't known a person could do a thing like that. Um, so I, um, you know, I was like, wow. Uh, and then I started to think, actually, maybe I don't really like physics that much. You know, and, I mean, I like, I, I, I liked it, but you know, there's such a difference between the high school level and really doing it for your life at a really high level at university. And I, I, I realized like, actually, maybe that's not really where my heart is. And I was like, I went through the whole thing. I was like, oh, maybe I should be a lawyer. Maybe I should, you know, be a doctor. I went through the standard, you know, uh, multiple choice choices. And then, you know, I, I just thought, um, actually, somebody said to me, he said, I think you should be a writer. And I was like, wow, people can do that. And once I had that idea, I couldn't let it go. And it's so strange because I don't really understand it myself, but I think people who are writers do. You know, you have that moment when you realize that's what you want to do. And it's almost like being addicted to like drugs. You know, you just cannot let it go anymore, even though you want to let it go. It's like not practical to do it. There are like a lot of reasons not to do it. You think you might be very, very bad at this thing you want to do. Um, and yet, like from the moment I actually realized it was an option for me to be a writer, I didn't want to be anything else. Um, even through the years when I was too busy to write, or I was bad at writing, or I got very little writing done due to procrastination and all kinds of other things, I still could not let go of that idea of being a writer. Yeah. Um, Girl in Translation was your debut novel, right? It came out in 2010. So it's been quite a number of years. Uh, what was your experience like uh, querying a Chinese American immigrant story back then? And how has your experience in publishing changed 13 years later? Like, is this a, well, is this an experience that like publishers are actively looking for now? You know, I think that is such an excellent question and one that I have not gotten before. Um, and the truth is it's tremendous, it's night and day. I mean, nowadays it's, we still have a long way to go, but it is night and day from when I was querying a girl in translation because I queried that book probably in 2008. Um, because it, you know, takes like two years to get through the publishing process. It published indeed, like you said, in 2010. But I was looking for an agent in 2008. And what had happened was that I had, um, I actually already had an agent because when I was at Columbia, I published a couple of short stories. I was very lucky and those stories got a lot of attention and I was actually approached by agents. And I signed with a big top agent who represents, you know, some very literary top people. And he encouraged me through the years, you know, it took me 10 years to write Go on Translation. In the middle of um, that time, I had finished a draft and it was turned out to be completely terrible. So I had to throw away like 350 pages. I only kept the first 50. I had to start again. I just had no idea what I was doing and I had to learn how to write a novel and I was busy, you know, I was an immigrant, I was a new mom, I had 
two little babies. So I, I was teaching. Um, so I had a really full life, but also I was also learning how a person writes a novel. And I finally finished it. I sent it to this agent who had, um, you know, supported me all of these years. And he wrote me an email and it said, Dear Jean, there is no market for this book. So oh. that tells you, that tells you what the publishing landscape was like at that time. Um, and he said, uh, if you need any help finding a new agent, I'd be happy to give you suggestions. So he very tactfully dumped me at the same time. Um, and he said, congratulations on being a mom. So I understood the, the subtext quite clearly. Um, it was pretty much in my eyes, you have no talent. The book will never find a market. And you should probably concentrate on being a mother instead of ever thinking you could write a book. So that was what you could call a real dark moment in my life and in my career. And I have never come closer to quitting than at that moment because, you know, this agent was a very respected, very thoughtful, smart person and certainly knew a lot more about the publishing world in New York than I did. I was living in the Netherlands by that time. And um, I didn't have any connections where, you know, I was not like a person who knew how to network or, you know, use the people I met. Like I had no idea. I was totally disconnected and very clueless. So I really almost quit because I thought maybe I just have no talent. Maybe the work, the book doesn't work at all. And then um, a month later, I gave myself a month to put the book aside and then I reread it. And I thought, you know, I love this book. And I thought I'm going to give myself a year to find a new agent. And at the end, because I have a family to support, you know, I can't just kind of lollygag around doing whatever I want. Like I actually need to make money to support my kids and my family and stuff. So I was like, I'll give myself a year um, and see what if I can land an agent in that year. And if I don't, then I'll reevaluate after the year. And the advice to give to new authors is you should start at the bottom because you are a little author and you should get a little agent. Um, and I was like, well, screw that. <laughs> I'm just, I just, I'm not going to do that. I just did not want to do that. I thought what I'm going to do is I can take rejection. I can be rejected all day long. So I thought I'm going to start from the top. And they're going to reject me and reject me and reject me until I get to like number 500 or a thousand. And then um, I'll see if someone takes me. So I made a list of like the 10 biggest agents in the world. And, you know, I had it ready. It was, I remember it was 11 o'clock here in the Netherlands, 5 p.m. in New York City uh, on the computer. And I looked at the first name on the list and I just had this moment of sheer and total panic because I was like, she's the head of one of the biggest agencies in the world. She represents Pulitzer Prize winners. I am doing the dumbest thing ever. And I should listen to those people who are like, start with the little junior agent because there's no way she's going to take on 
someone like me, especially with a book where there's no market, right? I have been told there's no market for this book about a Chinese immigrant girl. So um, luckily during that panic attack, I clicked on the mouse somehow and like everything got sent. Half an hour later, her office requested the full manuscript. The next day, other agents reacted. And by Monday, I had the first offer of representation. And on Tuesday, she called me and she is my agent today. So um, that was my experience querying. And it was the exact same manuscript. I had not changed a word. She sold that book at auction a month later, and it became an international bestseller. It was a major deal. Um, So I would say that the market at that time seemed to most people to be closed to fiction like mine. But it, and, you know, really the only people around at that time were kind of like, you know, Amy Tan, Lisa C. I think Min Jin Lee had already published. Lance Samantha Chang had published. But there were really very, very few um, writers like us, very few writers of color. And they didn't really feel a need for us. A lot of people thought there was no need for us. But you can see that when my agent championed me, the book flew and it took off. And nowadays, I still do think that it's true that the publishing industry and what is published is still overwhelmingly white. But there is much more of an awareness and there's much more of an understanding that books like, you know, ours can be also really marketable. So not only literary, not only highbrow and read by a few, but actually there are a lot of people who would love to read this kind of book. Yeah. I mean, Girl in Translation was um, also recently challenged for a book ban earlier this year. I know, it's my life, my God. You flew all the way (laughs) to Pennsylvania to speak against this challenge. Uh, and, you know, like Girl in Translation, it's been like an international bestseller, like you said. And, um, you know, the marketplace has changed so that there's like more immigrant stories, more stories by BIPOC authors. So what was going through your mind when you first heard the news that your <laughs> book was might be banned at schools? Uh, well, I was really shocked um, and I had not really been following it. Like I was writing The Leftover Women. So I was very buried in my own world. Um, I hadn't realized what was happening around across the United States. And so a parent wrote to me and said, your book is being challenged in our school district to be removed from school libraries. And Girl Translation is taught all around the world in schools. Um, so, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the, not, I don't know about main, but it is certainly one, uh, like a popular choice about, you know, buy of a book by a person of color um, that is actually taught in the curriculum of a lot of schools around the world. And I think that's really why it was targeted. So the mom said to me, she said, would you write a defense that I could read um, at our school board meeting? And I said, yes, thank you so much. Let me write this. And I sat down to write it. And meanwhile, I started talking to people, um, to librarian friends and teachers. And I realized how huge this challenge was and that it wasn't just my book, but so many other books that was widespread, that people were being threatened 
people were being blacklisted. I mean, all kinds of stuff was happening. And I thought, you know, this is important enough that I actually need to speak up. And, um, you know, I, I'm not overtly political. Usually I you just try to write my books and that's really hard enough for me to do. But sometimes, you know, you realize this is a moment when maybe I can make a tiny difference. And I thought not to my own book because I, I don't, re- I didn't really think it was going to affect what they did with my own book. <laughs> But I thought, I knew that if I went in person, there'd be much more media attention, that whatever I said could be filmed and could be rebroadcast and used um, on, you know, the side of the freedom to read. So I I just understood that I could maybe just put a drop uh, in the bucket and make a tiny bit of difference. And so I flew there and I was advised not to by a lot of people. I was told to hire private security because, you know, there had been a guy with a gun um, who'd been removed from a meeting recently and they thought there could be protests and all kinds of other things. Um, So I, you know, it wasn't the most comfortable situation to go into, but I did think it was important enough to do it. And the record, and it was true, there was so much media attention because I went there in person. And the recording of that has gone viral. So I was in the end, very glad I did it. Yeah, it's, it's wild, even for us covering these book bans, because the reasons books are being like flagged are like so nothing reasons, right? It's like, oh, this book doesn't center around a white protagonist. Thus, it'll make her kids feel yeah. bad. I mean, the people who are challenging it have not read the books. Like, they don't know the contents of the books. Right. Or whether or not they have, you know, there is a website that details why Girl in Translation was being banned. So, of course, I looked it up because it was supposedly banned for pornographic reasons. I was like, are you kidding me? There's no sex in the book. Like, there's nothing explicit. I mean, Marvel movies show more sex than my books do. So I, um, so I, I was just like, so I looked up exactly what they were protesting. And, you know, in the course of 320 pages, 85,000 words about, there are four so-called curse words. They're not even curse words. They're like body parts, right? And, mild body parts. And then they found four pages of what they called questionable material. And in that questionable material was some kissing, some pot smoking, uh, one sexual encounter, which is completely non-explicit, as is the kissing and everything else. And um, one character considers abortion, which incidentally, that character does not go through with. That's it. I mean, that's it. So it is just, it was just completely outrageous for my book to be challenged, but it is, it is still being challenged and being removed because like you said, sometimes people haven't even read it. If there's just a list of books and they're just pulling them off the shelves. Um, and I, I do think that one of the reasons Girl in Translation was targeted is because it's widespread. It is read in a lot of schools and it is about a Chinese-American immigrant girl. Yeah. I mean, have these people read any of these like white classics? Like there's way worse than kissing in a lot of those. Yeah, there's a, I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird, that like, that has more grim scenes. Um But I wanted to move on to talking about your latest book, The Leftover Woman, 
Um, you mentioned in your author's note, which is at the very beginning of the book before the prologue, uh, that this was your most deeply personal book. And I thought that was interesting because your previous books have, um, you know, have been drawn from your own personal experiences, like Girl in Translation. Uh, it's your experience, like working at a clothing sh- um, clothing factory growing up, uh, Mambo in Chinatown. You were a competitive ballroom dancer. Um, so, like, can you tell us, like, why Leftover Woman was so personal to you? Well, you know, sometimes books are really personal because they mirror the story of your life. But sometimes they're really personal because the thing that fuels them is something very private and very deeply felt um, in the author. And that's the case with The Leftover Woman because, well, let me just first say what The Leftover Woman is about, right? The Leftover Woman is about Jasmine, um, who is a young woman in China, gives birth and is told shortly afterwards that the baby had died. She finds out a few years later that her baby had not died, but had been given away by her husband to an American couple for adoption, another casualty of China's controversial one-child policy. When the novel opens, Jasmine has followed her daughter to New York City to with her husband hot on her trail to try to get her child back. And the story is told from the point of view of Jasmine, the birth mother, and the point of view of Rebecca, the wealthy publishing executive um, who, you know, is trying to balance family and career and deeply, deeply loves her adopted Chinese daughter. So on the surface, it seems to have less to do with my life than my other books. But the reason it's so personal to me is because I really grew up as a you know, woman in a very traditional Chinese family. And the feelings that Jasmine had of not being valued and not being seen were, you know, things that I really dealt with on a day-to-day basis. You know, I'm the youngest of seven children. I am a girl. And it's just, I was brought up in an environment that clearly preferred boys and where I was not allowed to disagree or to um, voice any kind of opposing opinion. If I got a job, I got an internship as a senior in high school in a laboratory, they said, well, you know, who's the boss? Is it a man? I said, yes. And they said, well, you can't take the job. Um, So, you know, I grew up really in a a situation that where I really understood that I was not um, expected to go to an Ivy League school. You know, I was expected to grow up and like all the other role models in my family, kind of to marry and to take care of the children and to bear sons and so on. So that is kind of at the heart of this novel for me. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the one child policy, and I feel like uh, I'm I mean, for our listeners who don't really know much about the one child policy, it was implemented in 1979 uh, to curb China's population growth. And it uh, completely ended in 2021. So now there are no more restrictions. But obviously, like it took a very long time to get there. 
Um, and I don't think a single Chinese family, whether they live in China or abroad, has not been affected by this policy and how uh, they view girls. So I, I just want to ask, like, how has the one child policy affected you and your family and just like your perspective on your culture as someone who grew up here in America? Well, I, I mean, I think I, I loved what you said about how I don't think a single Chinese family has not been affected because we are so interconnected. And um, even though my family had already left, you know, we had a lot of family who was still there. And, you know, the, the impact of the one child policy just cannot be underestimated because we have a tradition of having large families and like many rural kind of communities, you know, large families, the daughters traditionally were considered to be out of the family once they married. And so you needed to have boys, you know, the boys were the ones who would extend the family line, who would bring, you know, the wives into the family and who would take care of you when you got old because there was no system in place to help you when you got too old to work or to feed yourself. And so those were all um, factors that were in play when this policy got implemented. And then suddenly people were only allowed to have one child. And it wasn't like, oh, you got a slap on a wrist if you uh, violated the policy. No, I mean, your life was destroyed. You know, you could be ostracized, fines of up to like a year's salary. People were forcibly sterilized or abortions. So. Um, you know, what wound up happening was that there became a selection process to have boys. And I think I've just recently read a statistic that there are like 32 million more men than women in China at this point, at this moment. Um, so it's an incredibly, you know, it's, it's a policy that has a tremendous, tremendous impact. And now, you know, what the government has done is they've reversed this policy because the birth rate has plummeted to such an extent that they're worried that there aren't enough women because, you know, of this kind of selection. And so um, the new thing that they've started doing is calling women who are unmarried above a certain age. And it's something ridiculously young, like 25 or something. Um, they call them leftovers, you know, like leftovers on a plate. Like they are leftover women. They are useless. They are not nourishing the country and not doing what they should do as a way to shame them. It's a kind of, you know, about face. Um, and so that is why I chose that as the term for my novel. Yeah, definitely sounds like what happens when you make policy without taking into account, you know, culture. And it's kind of sad how we're not really surprised. This is how things turned out. Like, um, you know, most of our families came to um, the States in, you know, the 80s or before and carry with them this culture that's steeped in like conservatism and male preference and, and all that. And I remember um, talking to a friend who is a Chinese adoptee. And she was saying that, you know, 
currently a lot of media portrayals of Asian adoption um, focuses on the Korean American community or the Korean adoptee community. But the next generation is going to be mostly Chinese adoptees because China was a source of a lot of, you know, unwanted, uh, specifically unwanted girl babies um, over the last few decades. And I want to ask, like, why, what inspired you to make Chinese adoption um, a focus for your story? Well, you know, like you said, you know, with theirs, we've all been so affected by it. I know so many people on different sides of this story, right? I know girls who were left on the side of the road to die and were saved by a family member. Um, I know girls who were placed for adoption. I know people who gave up their daughters one way or another because they felt they had no other choice. I know people who adopted those girls and love them desperately. I know girls who have been adopted and have been brought up in the West and have a whole life here. And it's kind of amazing that this thing, which is so enormous and has impacted such a huge part of our society, has not really been portrayed in art. Um, and so, you know, for me, what drew me to this story is, you know, I I mean, I love both of the moms. I love Jasmine and I love Rebecca. I identify with both of them, even though Rebecca is white, um, because, you know, Rebecca is a modern woman who is successful and smart and is being judged much more harshly than she would be if she, than if she were a man. And she is very flawed, absolutely, in a lot of ways. But she's kind of trying to juggle all those balls um, in the air. And I, I know what that's like very much. And, but I, but probably the heart of the story for me is Jasmine's where, you know, you just feel like you are, um, powerless in a environment that is unwilling to let you have a voice. And I think the book in a lot of ways is about how women are seen versus how they feel and what they really are like on the inside. So all of those, you know, issues kind of made this book for me. Yeah, I was really impressed by how you juxtapose the interiority of your uh, mother characters with how uh, other people view them. And I also liked how Jasmine, uh, she leveraged what other people perceived Asian women to be as, like fetishization of Asian women being meek, uh, being invisible. Uh, what made you want to explore that topic? Well, I think as an Asian woman, you know, that's just something that we have to deal with our entire lives one way or another. Um, and I think that, you know, one theme that runs throughout all of my work is the difference between how you are seen and what you are like inside. And I think that Jasmine, it, it, she's a complicated situation because she's very beautiful, but she has, you know, beauty without power is really a curse. And so she was really used for her beauty and for the way she looked. And that's why she was married off at such a young age in China. Um, and, you know, so she's learned to hide it. But when she comes to the U.S., because she has borrowed money from snakeheads, the Chinese mafia, and is undocumented and needs somehow to find a job in order to pay them back. 
she has to use her looks. You know, she has to actually use that fetishization of um, Asian women. And she winds up working in a strip club as a cocktail waitress to just to try to earn the money to somehow get her child back. Um, and I thought that was just a very complicated, very interesting situation, a very kind of intense situation that really highlights issues that I think a lot of Asian women have to deal with. There's a quote in your book that uh, really struck me. It was, I was a leftover woman, I realized, after everyone else had carved away what they wanted to see in me and taken what they desired. I was all that was left. And I thought that was so clever because, like you said earlier in this interview, like leftover woman is a term uh, that China uses nowadays to shame like young, youngish women into, you know, get married faster, pop out babies. Um, and it really made me question how women, especially immigrant women, have to juggle all these personas in order to survive, in order to navigate their new country. And each of your book, each of your books, they focus on the immigrant experience. So like, how has that been rewriting that experience, revisiting that experience in each book? Like, have you discovered something new each time? Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, there's always so much to explore and so much to say. I, I love what you said. I mean, I think that um, the leftover woman is very much about the ways in which we have to carve ourselves into different slices to be palatable to whatever portion of society we're facing at that time. And indeed, especially immigrants and especially women, you know, there are so many roles you have to fulfill. And sometimes I know in my own experience, I felt like I was a completely different person with my mother, for example, than I was in school or than I was at work or than I was with my friends when we went out. And you're just, you know, and then of course, later on, you're a mom and with your kids and you have those identities are so separate. And that's something, of course, everyone has to deal with. But I do feel like for immigrants, it's extra because you have the language barrier, you have the cultural barrier. And so you are navigating between all of these different cultures. And if you're poor too, you know, you're presenting a kind of more affluent face to the professional world. While at home, you might be, you know, seeing a very different kind of working class reality. Um, so yeah, those were things that were really important to me in writing these books. And I feel like there's so much to explore and so many different facets to say. So I, I love being able to go from book to book. Yeah. Um, like we were mentioned, most of your books, um, they focus on the experiences of Chinese working class immigrants. And I think that's really cool because, you know, right now, supposedly all the rage is all the affluent, crazy rich Asian stories. But I want to ask, like, why do you think it's important to also share the stories of not only working class immigrants, but immigrants who might need to, you know, work under the table to, to get by in this country? Yeah, I can say that I was one of those immigrants. Um, and so I think I have a kind of unique perspective in that I really was very poor. And I know what it's like to um, have people look down on you. 
I know what it's like to be wearing the wrong clothes and to have weird hair and to be awkward and to have an accent. And I also see it. I saw it with my parents, you know, that in English, they would be so awkward and they would seem so uneducated and simple. But because I also speak Chinese, I know that they're not, you know, they are a whole different person on the inside. So I have been very poor, but I am now quite successful. I, you know, I've been kind of through different echelons of society. And I really feel like, you know, there are a lot of people writing about being affluent. (laughs) Um, I have zero interest in doing that. I mean, I guess Rebecca's affluent in the book. So that was kind of, that was really fun to write. But, you know, the heart of what I right, like you said, is really to try to give a voice and to give a give a picture of what it's really like to have a life like that. And, you know, that you can be working class, but you have hopes and you have dreams and you have a whole complex self that maybe no one sees. And most people who are working class don't have the time to write books about it. You know, and a lot of people who have had the kind of background I've had, once they've left that background, you know, the ones who make it out, the very few who make it out, you know, they don't want to be reminded of it. You know, it's kind of shameful. You're embarrassed about it. You feel like nobody else had an experience like this. Um, But I can tell you, I give talks all around the world. And no matter how affluent and luxurious the venue, there's almost always someone who comes up to me and whispers in my ear, actually, you know, I was very poor too, or my mother was, or my uncle, or, you know, it's so, or I have a life like this too. I'm working, I'm falling asleep in class because I'm working day and night, just trying to pay my bills. Um, So it's so much more common than we actually think it is. So you explore the question of where does a child belong? Do they belong with their birth parent or their adoptive parent who is often not from the same culture? Sometimes they're not the same race. And Rebecca, she's white, she's affluent, she's, um, you know, she's a very well-off publishing executive. But, you know, like, Going into her POV, like even though you know she has great intentions, that she loves Fifi, her adopted daughter, there are just things that she, there are just blind spots that she has. And I thought that was really interesting because we don't really see adoption as a form of like we see it as like a savior story. You know, it's like, oh, I saved this baby from the streets from being um, abandoned. But what a lot of people don't know is that international adoption, you know, at a certain point, it became about transaction. A lot of these babies were abducted. A lot of these babies were given away um, without the mother's knowledge because they were poor, because they were unwed, um, or because they had um, issues with like their uh, family planner in their in their village and they were forced to uh, give up their babies. Um, so did you talk to adoptees and adoptive parents for researching this book? And did you talk to like um, adoptive moms like Rebecca who don't share the same race or cultural background as their Chinese daughter who was adopted? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I talked to a lot of them. Um, because I really wanted to make sure that I had 
you know, all the different sides of the story. And the problem is it's really, really complicated. And, you know, there are adoptions that were not fully legal, like the one in The Leftover Woman. But there are also adoptions that were legal, right? And where, you know, in some ways you could argue that that child had a much better life because he or she was adopted into another country. And I think every situation is so difficult. It's so different. And it's very difficult to really come down on the side of it should be this or it should be that. Um, I think that, you know, that was one of the difficulties in writing the book. But I think you are right that international adoption is a, an, an act that is fraught with many, many difficult issues. And it's something that everyone has to be aware of. And I think that awareness is key. Um, that to understand that, I think some adoptive parents in a very well-meaning way want to say, well, we love you. It doesn't matter what race you are. You, we don't see your color. You know, we don't see your culture. We don't see your color. You're just ours now. But that's not true. Because what happens is that that kid goes to school and is teased or bullied and everyone says, well, I mean, you don't look like your mom. I mean, what is going on? And that child can wind up feeling very isolated and distanced from their own culture and from the culture that they're being brought up in. And I think that that's something to be really aware of to make sure that you're not, you know, kind of cutting off the plant from its roots, but that, you know, that's something Rebecca has to learn over the course of the novel to respect the culture that the baby comes from and to make sure that, you know, you that conversation remains open um, with the child about how they're navigating these treacherous waters. So you've written a lot of family drama stories, but this book had a lot of thriller elements to it as well. Jasmine's being chased throughout the entire book by her her husband, and that carries with it a sense of violence, right? Like, can you talk about writing that that tension in that in that genre space? Yeah, it's, you know, I've kind of slowly moved more into the suspense um, arena. So from Girl in Translation, which was a real coming of age story and Mambo in Chinatown, which is an immigrant story coming of age with some a lot of romance in it. Searching for Sylvie Lee was probably my first book that really went much more into suspense and mystery since that novel is about two sisters and what happens when the older sister disappears and the younger sister has to find her. Um, and then I think I do move more into that thriller suspense space with the leftover woman while still trying to handle all these issues and themes of immigration and women and ambition and race. And what I do is um, I do construct the books more and more carefully. So as I've gone more sophisticated in terms of craft, I've, um, you know, like Girl in Translation was really one voice from beginning to end. Uh, but now my books have multiple points of view. And The Leftover Woman, I hope, is a very seamless and easy and propulsive read. But there's a very complicated architecture underneath the surface to make it all work. Um, so that all the timelines actually match up and, you know, that what I say happened actually 
did happen, could have happened, uh, that I'm not violating the laws of logic in any way. And so I... I do construct them quite carefully. Searching for Sylvie Lee was the same way. So I put together kind of the skeleton of the book. I mean, I start with a character. I hear their voices. I have a very rough idea of what the book is going to do. Then I start constructing it. And then usually I have to go back and forth. Like there are writers who can just construct the whole apparatus and then they write it. Like I I can't do that because I'm like, oh yeah, you know, they're going to be together. And then I get to the scene and they're like, no way. I'm not going to sleep with him. I'm like, oh God. No, so then I have to break the whole thing apart. You realize it was completely unrealistic to expect that character to do this. So um, I do go back and forth, but I am very conscious of trying to write a page turner. I do want to have questions that are unanswered. And as soon as one question is answered, I want another question to be raised. And for the suspense element to be there where people are thinking, oh, no, is this going to be OK? What's going to happen? How is it going to happen? How is it going to play out? And that hopefully in the end that people feel satisfied, but surprised. You know, the worst thing, of course, is when you read a book and you know what's going to happen and it actually happens, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, um, so, you know, even if it's beautifully written. None of us want that. But you also can have a book where stuff happens and you're like, whoa, that's not fair. I, You're bending the laws of logic here. Uh, we didn't know that. You have to play fair with your reader. But, you know, that's the trick to make it meaningful, meaningful to make it, you know, exciting and yet earned. Yeah. And I think it really helps to have compelling characters, especially when you are writing in multiple POVs. And one thing I do find really um, impressive is how you use language in your book, because you have characters who are thinking in Chinese. And then when they talk, it's like in broken English. And then you have other characters who are thinking and speaking in Dutch. And it's like, wow, like what a what a playful way to um to reveal plot because, you know, if you're writing from one character's perspective and they don't understand that language, you can sneak in bits of mystery in there. So I think it's like a very uh, fun technique that you have uh, in both um, Searching for Sylvie Lee and uh, The Leftover Women. Absolutely. That's something I, you know, really love um, to do because I grew up multilingual. And of course, I also speak Dutch now. So I, I know what it's like to be on the inside and not be able to express yourself in the language you're trying to speak. I've done that a lot in my life. And, you know, I've seen people in different languages where somebody speaking English might seem very, very simple and not very bright when actually they are in the own native language. And I think a book is a really interesting way to show that. So I'm always playing with language in that way. And then in The Leftover Women, there's, of course, one very big plot twist. And it's a genre plot twist, but it in my novel, it actually is used to replicate the white gaze so that it has a deeper meaning beyond, oh, that's cool. She did that for the timeline so that we would be surprised. But it actually has a meaning. It's actually saying something about the ways in which we look at women and the ways in which we look at people who are not from our own culture. Yeah, I think it's definitely a good 
lesson to teach, which is like fluency is not a representation of intelligence. And yes, you shouldn't believe that. And all of us who grew up either as immigrants or children of immigrants, we understand that because we like you said, we've seen our parents talk to each other and, you know, talk to us. And it always hurts when, you know, you see other people assume that they're not as intelligent because they can't speak as fluently as, as they want to. So. Also, they assume that we're always like talking about them. And it's like, no, we we're like talking about our groceries or gossiping about like our family. (laughs) We are not talking about you, white person who thinks that we are talking behind your back in our own language. But sometimes we are, though. I mean, sometimes we are, but not all the time. It it doesn't happen every single time. So like uh, Jean mentioned, like the white gaze of like of how like our language and um, everything is just being perceived. It's always, it's always funny as someone who is on the inside of that culture. Uh, But, but the leftover women and also um, searching for Sylvie Lee, they got picked up for adaptation, right? All of my books are all of your books. They all, all four. Yeah. Get that um, money. That's exciting. (laughs) Well, yes. Yeah, so that's exciting. Yeah, all four are um, in development at this moment for film and television. That's amazing. Well, can't wait. Hope I know the process of getting an adaptation to screen is just as fraught as getting like a manuscript to to the publishing press. So I would hope you the wish you the best of luck in those endeavors. I hope to see one of your stories or all of your stories actually on the screen at some time. Um, Love Over Women comes out October 10th, which as of this episode would be earlier this week. So I'm sure you're very busy with book launch. I don't know if you're doing a tour or you're just doing anything remote. But um, in addition to this book coming out, um, what else do you have in the works? Yeah, well, I am going on an extensive tour. So if, um, you know, my website, jeanquok.com has my tour scheduled. I would love to see anyone if I'm in the area. Uh, I'm also going to Canada and the UK and Iceland and Hawaii. So I'm going all, and all through the US. Um, but meanwhile, like you said, I actually need to hand in my second book. <laughs> so I not the second book of this contract. So that would be my what which book is that one two three four fifth book my fifth book yeah I think right this is my fourth one yes number five so I (laughs) number five I owe them number five uh although I am on the road for quite a while um so my next book is you know I Rira had that great question of how how do you keep writing about these same themes in different ways? You know, there are just so many different aspects of the experience that are really fun to explore. Um, so uh, the my next book is a murder set at Harvard. Oh. And I just went to Cambridge this summer to do research and look into the houses and find a good place to stash a body and stuff like that. I love this progression of Coming of age story to mystery to thriller now to murder, which is yeah, yeah. it makes sense. I, I, I respect it. it. <laughs> well, Before thank- you know it, I'm going to be writing like serial killers everywhere. That's the next step, <laughs> logically, right? A serial killer that goes around killing colonizers. Yeah, that that's a book that I would read. Well, Jean, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Boba. Congratulations on the launch of your fourth book. Good luck with that fifth book, Murder Mysteries. Uh, I'm sure that's going to be a challenge as well, but uh, looking forward to to what's next for you. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. 
And that was Jean Kwok, the author of The Leftover Women, um, which is out now at booksellers everywhere, including the Books and Boba bookshop. As always, when you purchase books from the Books and Boba online bookstore, um, you support not only your local bookstores, but us at the Books and Boba podcast as well. Um, you can check out the store by going to booksandboba.com and clicking on the bookshop link. And, you know, just one last reminder, because I, I, we do need to plug this more often, but if you've been enjoying um, the Books and Boba podcast, um, please leave us a rating or review on Apple or wherever you're listening. Um, it really does help us out by um, getting us in front of more people. And if you really want to support us, um, definitely check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Books and Boba. Um, you can join our members on Discord and, and engage with us in real time, as well as listen to our um, monthly uh, Boba Chat episodes where um, Rira and I chat about themes, books, and non-book related as well. Rira. Can you remind our listeners what we are reading for Book Club for October 2023? So we are reading Natural Beauty by Ling Ling Hong. And it's a horror contemporary novel that follows this young musician who goes into the elite beauty-obsessed world where perfection comes at a staggering cost. So this is our spooky read for the month of October and it was recommended to us by one of our Patreon um, subscribers. Yeah, thanks to Jennifer Hatfield for suggesting this book. And, you know, this is another perk that we have for our Patreon and every quarter. Uh, we do open up our suggestions to our Patreon supporters uh, to help us pick um, a book to read. So definitely another reason to join our Patreon. Um, but yeah, looking forward to reading this book. It sounds like a very um, specifically Asian type of horror with like the beauty industry and all that so um let's see how much trauma i can handle as an <laughs> asian american woman who has had issues with her own beauty standards but that's gonna be fun to talk about yeah it's a good time for spooky um yeah as always if you finish the book and have thoughts you'd like to share with us um, please let us know on our discord or on our goodreads forums um we do love to include your feedback on our episodes whenever possible as well um, but with that, thanks again to Gene Kwok for joining us on this episode of Books and Boba. And yeah, we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Rayu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about The Collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Charlene Kay. I'm a musician, songwriter, and guitarist. Growing up, I loved music. Whether it was pop, acoustic, emo, I ate it all up. But as a Chinese-American kid living in Scottsdale, Arizona, I also felt isolated, never really seeing artists who looked like me or shared my experiences. So after years of performing on stages all over the world, I wanted to create a space to highlight the amazing Asian musicians who I knew were out there, just not always getting played on the radio. 
That's why I started Golden Hour, a podcast where Asian singers, songwriters, instrumentalists, and music producers share their personal stories. And it's a space for you to discover your new favorite artist. Listen to Golden Hour with me, Charlene Kay, wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. <laughs> 